parents, um, Hubtown Kids is beginning a brand new curriculum called The Biggest Story. Um, if, you want, uh, if, if, if you want to get a little bit more clarification on what this curriculum looks like, uh, just what exactly uh, is the biggest story in general, uh, you'll want to talk with Wendy. She'll be happy to uh, walk you through that, but uh, a new curriculum cycle starting next week uh, for the kiddos. Now, brothers and sisters, uh, if I didn't uh, introduce myself, uh, my name is Chris Gomes. I serve as one of the pastors. I'm happy to be here with you this morning. Uh, over the last several weeks, we have been working through a brief letter in the New Testament. Uh, but before we jump into the passage, I want to highlight one really helpful resource, a resource that's been helpful for me over the last several weeks, a resource that was helpful for me just as recently as yesterday, which is the most recent issue of Table Talk magazine. Uh, it's a really helpful discipleship resource, which you can tuck into your Bibles. But in this month's issue of Table Talk, the good folks over at Ligonier Ministries focused on the life and the works of one who is arguably one of the most important figures in the first thousand years of Christianity. And not only was he known for his magnificent oratory skills in his preaching, uh, not only was he known for his um, uh, voluminous writings, he's perhaps best known for the Christian classics, the Confessions, and the City of God. If you don't know who I'm referring to by the titles of those works, I'm referring to Augustine of Hippo. Uh, there in this um, month's issue of Table Talk magazine was a very brief biography on Augustine. And I won't go over all the details of that biography. I would encourage you, if you have a couple of dollars to spare every month, to subscribe to uh, Table Talk magazine. It's been so helpful on my morning commute to work and uh, just in regular devotion. But in this, uh, um, this month's issue, there was a brief biography on the life and the works of Augustine. And just in summary, what I found fascinating while reading about the life and the works of Augustine was not necessarily just how incredibly skilled and in intelligent and uh, uh, excellent he was in the way in which he communicated. What I found fascinating was here was a man who had a ferocious love for the world, who was also loved by the world himself for his abilities, his skills, uh, his capabilities, his intellect. And yet it was only when Augustine learned of the great love of God that he could say a profound statement like, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. That line that I just shared is probably something many of you have seen maybe online or you've seen, you know, um, just kind of thrown around in, pl uh, you know, in places. Uh, it's a powerful, poignant statement of the human condition. We have been made by God, for God, and until we find rest in him, we are restless. We clamor and crave and claw our way towards things that we think will satisfy us because we have a craving within us that cannot be satisfied except by God. Augustine, so long ago, learned, as we all must, even today, that this world is passing away. Augustine's life is an, is an example for us even today here in this modern 21st century American life that while love for the world promises many things, many things that may even satisfy for a moment, 
It is only the love of God that leads weary people to true and lasting rest. So that's my plug for Table Talk Magazine. I am not paid by Ligonier, but I think I should be. But over the last few weeks, we have been working through the Apostle uh, John's first letter. We've been going through, verse by verse, through the letter of 1 John. So uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there now. Just a quick recap. We looked at this magnificently powerful and eloquent short little letter where the Apostle John began by reaffirming that Jesus Christ is the word of life. He then affirmed that those who truly know God and have fellowship with God are those who walk in the light as he is in the light. And then we looked at um, one of my favorite passages in 1 John chapter 2, where the apostle reminds these believers, and by extension us today, that if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Thank you for saying amen, because that statement deserves an amen. And last week, we considered the apostles' old yet new commandment that Christians are to love their fellow Christians. So really, just this is basic Christianity that the apostle is unpacking for this church. This morning, we are going to move from the apostle's affirmations to his warnings. So if you uh, aren't there yet, turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. Uh, we'll be considering two brief verses, uh, technically three brief verses. First John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. So if you're new to reading the Bible, the, uh, uh, the letter of First John is found towards the end of the Bible. Uh, it's towards the end of the New Testament. Uh, the larger numbers are the chapter numbers. The smaller numbers are the verse numbers. If you don't have a Bible that, uh, with you that you can read yourself, uh, there are black pew Bibles there in front of you. Uh, consider that our gift to you if you don't have a Bible that you can read uh, comfortably and um, uh, consistently. Uh, you can turn to page 1,211. You can also follow along on the screens as I read. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world... The love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. And if you were to summarize these three verses just in one sentence, I think a helpful sentence would look something like this. That God's people must not love the world as the world is passing away. That's really the crux of the passage this morning. God's people must not love the world as the world is passing away. So we could really just close the book and go on off to lunch now. But as a preacher, I've got more to say. There's two things that I want to highlight for you from these brief verses. Number one, we are called to not love the world. Do not love the world. Number two, we're called to remember that the world is passing away. And again, I'm just synthesizing those verses again. So these two things. Do not love the world, and the world is passing away. So in this passage, the apostle gives his beloved church two reasons why they and by proxy, we should not love the world. Right? He lays it out. He's very clear. He says first in verse 15, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
So if you remember, over the last several weeks, we've been considering why John is writing this letter in the first place. So false teachers have come in with a dangerous teaching contradicting the essential claims of Christianity. And so what's happened now is that, then, is that these Christians have seen a mass exodus from their ranks. Many Christians, those who once professed faith in Christ, have now fallen prey and victim to false teaching and they've left. They've now denied the essential claims of Christianity to follow false teachings, right? And one of the implications of the false teachings was that you can live however you want to. You can indulge yourself in the things that God would call wicked, right? So that's what the false teachers are essentially claiming. And historians, while they can technically identify what these false teachers were uh, positively affirming, like what is it about their system of thought that they're affirming, uh, John's letter seems to be addressing the things that these false teachers are denying about Christianity. So Paul, uh, or, uh, uh, the apostle John doesn't seem to be on a crusade to destroy and you know, just throw away whoever these people are. He seems to be getting straight to the heart of the matter by saying, no, 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 that is false. Do not listen to this. Listen to what I have to say to you, because what I have received is the truth. Right? So he's clarifying what is false with what is true. So the first thing he says is that if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Do not believe those who claim that they are one with the Father when they are walking in darkness. Right? James in James chapter 4 says something very similar. So in James chapter 4, verse 4, the writer James there says, you adulterous people. Oof. Like that just kind of takes your breath away when he, he brings about a charge like this. But he's getting to something that is true about the human condition. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Right? So he's saying the same thing. Look, if, if you love the world, then you're in rebellion against God. You cannot love the world and love the Father. James goes on, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James and James 4 and John and 1 John 2 are saying the same thing. Do not love the world because such love is incompatible with loving the Father. Right? John is clearly addressing the root issue and the root problem that these false teachers are bringing in because this issue is, has ethical implications, right? John is saying, in other words, love for the world and love for the Father are mutually exclusive. You cannot have it both ways. You cannot love one while claiming to love the other. You cannot swear ultimate loyalty to one and serve another. Some of the best uh, spy stories right, uh, have uh, double agents involved. Here is a person who claims to uh, uh, swear fidelity and loyalty to one nation while secretly serving another, right? Uh, th those are uh, uh, gripping tales and gripping stories of entertainment. But Jesus very clearly said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So a particular context involved there is, is the love for money. But the Apostle John is highlighting the very same thing. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
Love for the world and love for the Father are mutually exclusive. They are in competition. They can't, you cannot flirt with the one while holding the hand of the other. Right? They, they don't coexist. And yet, when we read a verse like this, there is one who does love the world. Right? You might be familiar with the language of loving the world, love the world. And at first glance, it, it may sound like John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Right? John goes on in verse 17. He says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. All right. So there in John chapter 3, John says, well, God loved the world, right? And in 1 John chapter 2, and now it seems to be that John is saying, no, 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 don't love the world. So is there a conflict, a contradiction in these two ideas that John seems to be saying? So there in John chapter 3, God loves the world, but here we're told that if you love the world, this is evil. So what are we to do with these ideas? Number one, if you're reading scripture and you find yourself feeling like this might be a contradiction, context is king. So a little Bible study tip for you if you're reading through the Bible uh, and, and, and you, you come across something that just seems like this, this doesn't seem to fit right, what, what's going on here, you have to understand the context. So in John chapter 3 and in 1 John chapter 2, the word that the apostle uses for world in the Greek is the term cosmos, right? So in, in, in John chapter 3, when John says the world, he is referring to fallen humanity in need of redemptive grace, right? Fallen humanity in need of God's redemptive grace. Uh, the idea of love also in both of these passages are different, Sure, they're the same term, but the, 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 the context is different. So in John 3, when John is saying, God so loved the world, what he has in mind there is the redemptive, saving love. Love from the Father for the world in which he desires to save sinners. That is good news in Christianity. Not that we find ourselves in need of having to clean ourselves up and try a little harder and prove ourselves to be worthy of God's affection and love and acceptance, but that God loved us first and has done all that is necessary to redeem us and to bring us into his own presence. The central claims of Christianity is counter to every single claim of every single world religion. It's very important to understand what we mean when we say God loved the world. God intends to save sinners, and he has done so by sending his own son. In uh, 1 John chapter 2, the, uh, the word that uh, John's using here, love, this is referring to a selfish kind of love of indulgence. Right? This is uh, referring to the individual's desire to share and indulge in sin. Right? So uh, picture in your mind, uh, if, if you have a sugar addiction like myself, you know, it's not enough to just have one bite of pecan pie. Like you you got to have a second slice. And it's not even so much you need that second slice. You need that whole half. Like, you just want to indulge in it. You've got this craving within you that can't be fulfilled until you have a little bit more. That's the kind of idea that John has. So, 
1 John 3, or I'm sorry, in John chapter 3, God loved the world, and he gave his only son, so that whoever would believe in him might not perish but have eternal life. The idea here in the letter of 1 John is a little different. John is warning the saints against worldliness, against a earthly craving to indulge in our own self-centered, selfish, fleshly desires. Now, before we unpack that a little bit further, maybe you've heard this idea that Christians should not be like the world, right? Like, in the world, not of the world. Uh, I think there's, like, you know, uh, bumper stickers and T-shirts and, you know, all those types of things that, you know, like in fancy, uh, fancy uh, graphics and whatnot. But Christians should uh, be in the world but not of the world, which is true. Like, we are in the world, but we should not be exactly like the world. There's something uniquely distinct about Christians, right? You are the light of the world, Jesus said. You're the salt of the earth, the Lord said. But practically speaking, maybe you've heard well-meaning Christians say something like, uh, well, you shouldn't listen to certain types of music because it's the devil's music, right? Jesus loves Southern gospel, not ACDC. Okay, well, or, or, or maybe you've heard things like, well, it doesn't honor the Lord if there's a drum set on the stage because, you know, that's the devil's instrument. Okay, maybe, I mean, I, mean, I prefer a piano, but I, I didn't know that the devil had claim to an instrument. Or uh, maybe even more, um, uh, more practically, you, you've, you've heard or you've been told or you've even lived this way that Christians should avoid worldly dress, the way we dress, right? So Christian men... You've been told maybe to wear a button-down shirt and a tie and your hair should be so short that it never touches your ear, right? Uh, I, I think in, in, in some ways, Christian women have, have, have had it even harder, right? Like, you know, if you're going to avoid worldly dress, you know, dress in modest denim floor-length dresses, like, don't you let your knee show. Uh, <laughs> one... Uh, one uh, uh, one sister told me that she was told uh, in, a, in a private Christian school that she should not wear large hoop earrings. I'm like, well, what's that going to do? Uh, I, I was told by uh, the same sister uh, that they were told, that the, uh, that the young women were told in this private Christian school. I'm not, I'm not dogging on the Christian schools or, or private institutions or anything like that. Just giving you an example of, you know, uh, some ways in which Christians kind of think about worldliness. She was told that women should not wear button-down shirts because it, 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 it's an, it leads a trail, you know, for men's eyes, right? So you don't want your brothers to stumble. Come on now. The most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Don't wear button-down shirts. Anyway, but friends, that is not what the apostle has in mind. He's not talking about specific types of way that you dress or specific types of instruments in the church or specific types of ways uh, you know, that you um, uh, 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 participate in uh, Christian situations or social circles. Right? The apostle's command to not love the world does not mean that the Christian church is called to hate the culture around us because they're in opposition to us. We are not called to hate our neighbors and to hate the people around us or the culture around us. The apostle's command to not love the world does not mean that we are supposed to hate and tear down the economic or social structures around us or that we're to hate the government or hate big businesses or hate even other nations and so on and so on. 
When John says we are to not love the world, he is referring to the system of hostility and opposition to God under the influence of the evil one. This is much bigger than hoop earrings and, 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 and devil's music. As one author said, what John has in mind is the organized system of human civilization that is actively hostile to God and alienated from God. So we're talking about a big picture system that is against God's purposes and God's will. This is what John has in mind. And so when John says, you were to not love the world, he is talking about a system that we live in that is an active rebellion against God. We cannot claim that we love God and love the world. But we find ourselves in a world where there are houses and cars and industry and businesses and money and social structures and social settings. So what then are we to do? John's command to not love the world is an explicit command, and implicit in this command is to live in a distinct way. There's a distinction amongst Christians against the backdrop of the world because we are the light of the world. There is something that sets us apart from the darkness that is all around us. But if we look exactly like the darkness around us, how then are we to be distinct and different? John goes on in verse 16, love for the world and love for the Father being mutually exclusive. He, he goes on to explain exactly what this idea means and of what it is that we are to not love. So he says in verse 16, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So he's... Uh, he's explaining here exactly what this is, and he seems to be using kind of like, like general poetic language, right? Like desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, pride of life. They, they seem almost summary terms, right? So we'll look at each one of these specifically, just exactly what does John have in mind when he speaks of these things that are of the world. So desires of the flesh, right? Immediately, what comes to our mind is probably the idea of sexual immorality and lust, Right? Don't give in to the desires of the flesh. This is what John has in mind here is the evil inclination of sin that dwells within us. There is this idea that John's painting here of this inward craving for fleshly satisfaction. Right? So the desires of the flesh does have a sexual component to it. But what the, 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 the bigger idea is that these are the desires that rouse up the old self to practice the old ways, right? So Paul, and I couldn't think of a better word than this, so please forgive the pun, but Paul in Colossians 3, he fleshes this out a little bit further. Colossians chapter 3, uh, verses 5 to 10. You would be really blessed if you read uh, Colossians chapter 3, the entirety of the chapter, maybe this afternoon after lunch. But in Colossians 3, it, he expands this idea even more so. He says, uh, uh, verse 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Verse 6, On account of these the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. Notice how he's saying, look, you once did these very same things, right? But there's something distinct about you now. 
But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, the old earthly self, and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Paul uh, seems to be an expert at identifying and highlighting what the earthly things, the desires of the flesh are. Because when you look at Galatians chapter 5, and this verse hit me literally as we were singing the song. But in Galatians chapter 5, you don't have to turn there, but this is another passage for, you, uh, for your meditation that would be uh, very helpful for you. In Galatians chapter 5, in verse 16, he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Right? It, it's as if the Christian apostles, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, had something unified to communicate. <laughs> right? So he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Verse 17, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. Do you see this mutually exclusive idea again that Paul seems to be painting, right? Love for the Father and love for the world cannot coexist. Walking by the spirit and giving into the desires of the flesh, there's gonna be a tension here that cannot coexist. Paul goes on, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from, the, from doing the things you want to do. Verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Verse 19, he goes on. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and, the things, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So brothers and sisters, when we see a command that says, do not love the desires of the flesh, and then we see particular examples and lists like in Galatians 5 and in Colossians chapter 3 of what the desires of the flesh are, a helpful question to ask would be, what am I prone to give into? What, which of these types of works of the flesh and desires of the flesh am I prone to submit myself to? I highly doubt anybody in this room is tempted to go engage in an orgy. But you may be tempted to give in to fits of anger and rivalries. Uh, maybe you're not someone who is tempted to engage in sorcery, but you might be tempted to jealousy. Someone has something that you want and you've wanted for a long time and you just don't have it. And so you're jealous that they have it and you don't. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The, the, the desires of the flesh are not from the Father, but they are from the world. Paul continues in Galatians chapter 5 and he says, but the fruit of the spirit Right? So he's already highlighted for us that the desires of the flesh and, the, and to walk by the Spirit are in contrast and in opposition to each other. So if these things are the desires of the flesh, what then does it look like to walk by the Spirit? Well, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. 
Paul goes on to say, uh, to close out that chapter, he says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So we're to not submit ourselves to the desires of the flesh. But John goes on, there's more. Second thing of the world, the desires of the eyes. Right? So what does, what does uh, uh, the Apostle John mean when he is referring to the desires of the eyes? Well, this is a kind of a big picture kind of uh, idea, but it's referring to temptations that assault us from without. Things that we see that tempt us and trigger within us a desire to satisfy our sinful craving. Right? So one commentator uh, said that what John has in mind are, is those sinful cravings which are activated by what people see and lead to covetousness. Well, we already saw that the, uh, the Apostle Paul has said that covetousness, which is idolatry on account of these things or even this thing, covetousness, the wrath of God is coming. So John, what John may have in mind specifically with the desires of the eyes is greed, Material greed, material worldliness, wanting more and more and more and more. Uh, I, I didn't know if this particular example would kind of fit with what uh, John had in mind, but it personally was resonating, so I'm going to share this. It might fall flat, and if it does, that's okay, because Jesus is still on the throne, and we've got next week, so if I need to fix this next week, happy to do it. But I recently took a trip to Ikea, and if you've never been to Ikea, uh, it is a feast for the eyes, right? Like, yeah, they got the Swedish meatballs and the lingonberry jam and all that kind of stuff. But what they've done is they don't just say that you can have, you know, whatever furniture you want, and their furniture is not the best quality, you know, like, like compressed particle board is not as good of a quality as like, you know, solid oak that's been hand-hewn by your grandfather. But what they've done is they've taken basically half of a city and they've put up a thousand different showrooms of what you can have, and all you need to do is follow the arrows on the floor, and you walk about five miles through the store, and then once you get to the second floor and you're getting towards the cafeteria, that's when you start to get kind of hangry, right? And then once you have like, you know, all, the, all the designs picked out and you know exactly what you want, and then you go down to the warehouse, and that's where all the marital strife demonstrates itself. <laughs> but when, when we went to Ikea, I will honestly admit, I was captivated. My eyes were captivated because I thought, oh man, my living room could look like this or like that one or like that one. Oh, and you're telling me that my bedroom could have that nice bedroom set or that bedroom set or these other thousand bedroom sets? And you're telling me that my kids can have all their toys put away in this really neat Swedish compartment system that is like designed to be hidden in the wall? Oh, and you're telling me that it's, you, can, you can see, I was just absolutely captivated. My feet got way more tired than my eyes did at Ikea. But I felt this craving within me of wanting a little bit more. Because we knew all we need is one bookshelf. But I sure would love a new coffee table. And I sure would love this more comfortable room in mind. Oh, and if I got that room, this would also add to my comfort levels. Oh, and if I got that trim, that would really accentuate the room and it would make the space look a lot nicer. And so on, and so on, and so on. 
What I found in myself, for however brief of a moment, and a trip to Ikea is never very brief, but I found the desires of my eyes were being satisfied. But not really, because I couldn't afford to buy everything I wanted. <laughs> right? But what I was seeing was saying, you could have more, you could have more, you could have more. Right? So it's not enough to just have the bookshelf. You've you, you got to have the whole room set to go with it to really tie everything up. Maybe for you, the desires of the eyes may look a little different than a trip to a furniture store. Maybe for you, you see that brand new car and you think, whew, I would love a Hemi under my hood. Or maybe for you, it's, I would love to live in that neighborhood because those neighbors have their hedges trimmed real nice. Uh, or maybe for you, it's uh, flipping through job posting after job posting because you see what you could be earning. And this salary looks better than the salary you have, so you could go have more. Or maybe for you, the desires of the eyes could look as something as um, simple as, well, this church member's house is neat and clean and organized and put together. Why can't mine be like this? It's a craving that we have when we see the outside. And maybe for you this afternoon, it would be good to ask yourself, what desires of the eyes captivate my hunger? But not only do we have the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, but we also have the pride of life. And so this is, is an interesting phrase to use. What exactly does John have in mind here? One commentator said that the pride of life refers to the arrogance and vain glory that's an old word, vainglory, relating to the external circumstances of life. So for example, the pride of life is the tendency to impress others with our wealth, position, influence, physical prowess, or beauty. Uh, what John has in mind is an attitude of pretentious arrogance or subtle elitism that comes from one's view of wealth, rank, or stature in society. It is an overconfidence that makes us lose any notion that we are dependent on God. Pride of life. Our wealth, our position, our status, it gives us a sense of we are more important than we really are. So it's not sufficient for us to simply have just a job that we can coast in. We need to be respected. Right? We need others to look at us and be impressed with how far we've come and all that we've achieved. Right? Uh, last uh, couple of weeks uh, was the Super Bowl. Um, I only watch it just to eat the snacks. But you, you kind of see this like, celebration of achievement. Like, Yes, the Kansas City Chiefs, they accomplished something huge. They're world champions of a sport only played in America. <laughs> but there's this sense of, look at me. Look at all I've accomplished. Respect me. Be impressed with me. Don't you see this trophy I have? And maybe for some of us, it's not a trophy made out of sterling silver or gold or whatever that big football trophy is made out of. Maybe for some of us, it's what's on our mantelpieces. Maybe our trophy is our house. Maybe our trophy that we want other people to be impressed with is how far we made it in our career. Don't you see how impressive my job is? I've got an important job. I do important things with important people. 
right? Uh, one way that you, you, you can understand, may, maybe subtly pick up, that someone is uh, tempted by the pride of life is name dropping, right? They, uh, they want you to know who they know, and so they say, hey, yeah, I was having lunch with uh, this really important person, but they're not going to tell you that you should be impressed by the fact that they had lunch with this guy, right? Our wealth, our position, our influence gives us this, uh, temp- uh, it, it, it satisfies this temptation or promise to satisfy this temptation uh, that we can consider ourselves to be more important than we really are. I think over the last couple of weeks, there have been, uh, if, if you pay attention to uh, just the uh, entertainment news, there have been all these like award shows for celebrities, right? And um, what I noticed was uh, it, it, they're all the same, right? Like the BAFTAs in London are all the same as the SAG Awards in Hollywood, right? It's, it's actors and, and, and writers and producers and directors who have a lot of money and a lot of skill and all this stuff. They're all just kind of patting each other on the back, right? The trophy just looks different whether it's in London or it's in Hollywood, I never thought I would quote Madonna, but she said something very potent. Famously, she said, my drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That is always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, but then I feel I am still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. Friends, Madonna may know herself better than we know ourselves. This fear of being mediocre, this fear of being ignored, this fear of not being seen and not being impressed with. Uh, I work in a place where I know for a fact that my degree in Christian theology pales in comparison to you know, all of these really impressive degrees from all these really important schools. And, you know, like they, all these people around me have done so many things. Their resumes are so stellar and so impressive. What the heck am I doing here? I have nothing for other people to be impressed by. Really, I'm just a servant. I'm, I'm just here to bless my neighbors, right? But now that I've quoted Madonna, let, let me Christianize this a little bit more. John Piper said, the word for life in 1 John chapter 2 does not refer to the state of being alive, but rather to the things in the world that make life possible. So in chapter 3, verse 17, later on we'll see that this same word for life is translated as goods. Right? Anyone who has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Jesus used the same word in Mark chapter 12, verse 44, when he says that the poor widow in the temple put in everything she had, her whole living, right? So the phrase, uh, Piper goes on, so the phrase pride of life means pride in what you possess, the things you have. Now we can see how the three deceptions of the world relate to each other. The first two, lust of the flesh and lust of the eyes, refer to desires for what we don't have. And the third, the pride of life, refers to the pride in what we do have. I thought Piper's commentary was super helpful on this. He goes on to say, the world is driven by these two things, passion for pleasure and pride in possessions. Passion for pleasure and pride in possessions. 
Piper went on to say, there's the lust of the gutter and the lust of the gourmet. There's the lust for hard rock and the lust for high rock Mononoff. There's the lust of penthouse and the lust of Picasso. There's the lust of the Orpheum, which I had to look up. I didn't know what that was. It's, uh, it's a, a concert uh, venue. It's a, a really fancy grand theater. And then there's the lust of the Ordway. First John, which we'll see several weeks from now, ends with this ringing command. Little children, keep yourselves from idols, whether they're crude or whether they're cultured. I think when we look at these three things, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, I think a couple of questions should come into mind. What is it that you love? Do you love being praised by other people? Do you love being praised by your own people, your spouse, your children, your neighbors, etc.? What is it that you love? Do you love being praised? Do you love being respected? Do you love being, uh, other people being impressed with you? Do you love when other people sing your praises and tell you how skilled and how great you are? Do you love material gain? Do you love financial security? And the more you have stowed away and saved in your emergency fund, the more secure you feel and the, and the better you feel about your circumstances. What do you trust? Do you trust in your own physical strength and health? And so clearly you've made good decisions and so since your health is good, you're okay. What do you trust? Maybe it's not physical health. It could be your financial well-being. It could be your position at work. It could be your social standing and where you live and, and, and who you surround yourselves with. I think a third question that would be helpful is what commands your obedience? What temptations are you prone to succumb to? What desires do you find within yourselves that cannot be satisfied with just a little bit, and you need more, and a little bit more, and a little bit more. Maybe you're not giving into certain temptations or, or uh, uh, being ruled by certain desires. What ambitions do you find yourselves being driven by? I'm gonna work a little bit longer, and I'm gonna spend a little bit less time with my wife and my kids, so that my career ambitions take me to where I wanna go with my career. That could be one example. But maybe there are other examples that, uh, that you have considered, maybe that you should consider. What kinds of ambitions are you governed by? Piper went on to say, anything in this world that is not God can rob your heart of the love of God. We are so easily prone to be distracted by the shiny things. It could be a trip to Ikea. It could be that career that you have sacrificed so much for to get. Anything that in this world that is not God can rob your heart of the love of God. Anything that is not God can draw your heart away from God. If you don't have it, it can fill you with a passion to get it. If you get it, it can fill you with the pride that you've got it. Friends, I heard one uh, Christian artist say in a song, it ain't safe. We live in a world of tension and for the Christian, the love of the world is not safe. We are flirting with danger and disaster and, and, and wickedness if we think we can play with a little bit of fire over here and be totally fine. It ain't safe. Let me give you some scripture. First Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. 
Paul says, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Famously, he said, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. He goes on in the same chapter, verses 17 to 19. He says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. He's saying the exact same thing that John is saying. Do not love the world or the things in the world. He says, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Maybe you remember from uh, Pastor Josh's series through the uh, incredible letter of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, this should still be fresh in our memories. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Friends, there have been so many times and so many instances where I have had to remind myself, my fleshly desire to be satisfied with this material gain is not going to actually give me what I'm looking for. I must keep my life free from the love of money, however little or however much I might have. I must be content because God has promised he will never leave me nor forsake me. Amen. He's not going to do it. The stock market may be on fire this week, but that money can very quickly be squandered away by the next generation. And yet God has said he will never leave me nor forsake me. What kind of worldly gain do you find yourself tempted to find your rest in, to trust in, that you look to and say, all right, my identity is secure because I have this. Maybe it's your marital status. Maybe it's your family status. Maybe it's your employment status. Maybe it's your social status. But anything apart from God that you might be tempted to hang your coat on of your identity is going to vanish. It is not going to last. Keep your life free from the love of money, love of anything else that is not God. Because he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'm going to say this one more time. He has promised you, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Christian, do you find that to be good news to exult in? Or do you find yourself thinking, yeah, but I want something more. I find myself thinking that sometimes. And it is okay for you to admit that. This is a safe space. But he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. He will never leave me and he will never forsake me. That is good news. And that is good news, especially in light of the second thing that John reminds us of in verse 17. The second reason. So the first reason he gives us to not love the world is because love for the world and love for the Father are mutually exclusive. Right? They, they, they don't coexist. The second reason he gives us is that Christians are to not love the world because this world is passing away. 
Verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires. Right? We just talked about what that was. Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, pride of life. So the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is a reality John wants the church to embrace and to understand. The world is passing away. The opposite of loving the world is not only loving the Father, according to verse 15, but it's also doing the will of the Father, verse 17. We talked about this in John chapter 13 and in John chapter 15, in 1 John chapter 5. Right? When John says later, towards the end of the letter, that the commands of God are not burdensome. Jesus said, the world will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Right? He says, abide in my love, do what I have commanded. 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. So how are we going to abide forever? How are we going to live forever What John does not have in mind is, okay, go ahead and start doing the will of God now so that at the end, God will look at your resume and your record and say, all right, I think you did enough. No, 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 no. What John has in mind is, you've already received what is true. You already have fellowship with God. Now walk in the light as one who does have true fellowship. So loving the Father in verse 15 and doing the will of God in verse 17, they are not mutually exclusive. The one is the consequence of the other. If we love the Father, we are going to love doing the will of God. If we say we love the Father, we are going to, no matter how imperfectly we struggle through this, obey the commands that God has given to us not to curry favor with God and not to try to clean ourselves up a little bit more, not to prove ourselves to be you know, worthy of God's acceptance, but because we have already been accepted into fellowship with God. There is something uniquely distinct about knowing the love of God that transforms us, however slowly, however quickly, however radically, or however ordinarily, that changes us to obey God's commands. Friends, if you have found your love for the world to be warm and your love for God to be cool, what can you do? You might be tempted to think, well, I should just read my Bible more. You should read your Bible. The Bible is good for you. It's good food. It's rich meat. John Piper, again, has something very helpful here. He says that the prescription for your ailment is not much different than the prescription for seeking new birth in the first place. The same spirit that begets life also nourishes life. The same word that ignites the fire of love also rekindles love. The same Christ who once brought you out of darkness into his marvelous light can take away the long, dark night of your soul. So if you have found love for the world to be more gripping and to be warmer than you have of the love of God, let me, let me give you two things. Number one, remember that this world is passing away. This world is passing away. Those desires that grip our affections momentarily are transient. 
You cannot grip them tight enough or hold on to them long enough in order to keep them forever. Because we live in a world that is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So if you remember that this world is passing away, what can you do? You can consider what is not passing away. More importantly, who is not passing away? You can consider God. In contrast to a world that is passing away and fleeting and a life that is but a vapor, you can consider an eternal God who you will live with forever. You can consider a God who is the creator and the king and the governor of this universe, who is the sustainer of your life, who is the redeemer of sinners. You can feed on God's word and immerse yourself in the word of God. Friends, real practically speaking, come to church. Keep coming to church. Keep listening to the word of God. Keep immersing yourself in the word of God. Keep reflecting upon the word of God. Keep meditating upon the word of God. Keep the word of God hidden in your heart as a treasure. Dwell on the word of God so that you can remember the promises of God when you're tempted by the fleeing lusts and desires of the world so that you can remember, no, 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 God's word has said this world is passing, but he has given to me a promise that will never fade. Presence with Christ forever. Keep coming to church. Keep feeding on God's word. Keep gathering with the saints. Keep loving the brothers. Keep fanning the flame of the, 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 of the cooling embers that you might feel presently now because tomorrow, as you continue to endure, maybe your, rea- your understanding of the reality of this passing world will be stronger. Remember, this world is passing. But let me give you a second thing. Keep looking forward. Friends, keep looking forward because in Jesus Christ, our future is certain. This world is passing away. But there is glory that is coming, that is going to be revealed, which is beyond comparison to the passing desires of this world. Friends, glory is coming. And Jesus is not stingy with his glory. He's not sitting up there on a big old mound of glory and saying, I'm not sharing this. Yes, in one sense, the Lord does not share his glory with anyone. But in Romans chapter 18, or Romans chapter 8, verse 18, Paul says, glory is going to be revealed to us and we are going to enjoy the presence and the glory of God forever. Peter has it uh, uh, this way. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What's this glory we're talking about? Verse 4. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Brothers and sisters, glory is coming. And this inheritance that is imperishable, that is undefiled, that is unfading, that is kept in heaven, the only safe bank that we can rest in, friends, it is not a mound of treasure and is not, it is not a bunch of pleasures that we get to enjoy just for ourselves. It is not just a pile of rubies and gold and, and other jewels and, and, and all these things. It is Jesus What is the uh, inheritance that is imperishable? It is the risen Lord Jesus Christ by whose presence alone we will be satisfied forever. There is no treasure on earth 
that will satisfy you like the look of Jesus' eyes when he looks at you and says, you are my friend and you will dwell with me forever. There is no earthly gain that I can revel in and cherish in that I will not ultimately lose. But this inheritance that is kept for us, dear church, is imperishable. It will not rust. It will not fade. It will not rot. It will not decay. It is not dirty. It will never be defiled. It is unfading. And it is kept safely in the presence of God for you. To know the love of God in Jesus Christ will satisfy our longing hearts far more than loving any of these passing desires in a world that is passing away. Friends, Jesus in John chapter 6, verse 51, he said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Later on in chapter 8, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. John chapter 10, verses 28 to 29, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Friends, I've got maybe like 30 years to go, right? I'm in my early 30s, if, if you didn't know. I am not 45 as one of our church members thought I was. I've got maybe 30, maybe 40 years, maybe not, but there is a day when I will physically perish. But Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Friends, a world that is passing away that promises you with all of the luster and the grandeur of all of these earthly desires that you can try to satisfy yourself with, this world is passing. It is fleeting. It will vanish. It will fade. But we have been given eternal life, and we will never perish. Colossians chapter 3, Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Verse two, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Friends, underline that portion of the verse. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. How safe are you then? How much safer can you be than when your life is hidden with Christ. Christ is a vault, and nothing is going to be able to break that lock and snatch you out of his presence. How much safer can you be than when you are hidden with Christ in God? Verse four, Paul goes on. When Christ, who is your life, appears. All right. So Jesus church is not just this abstract ethereal man in the sky standing on the clouds he is our life not only is he the word of life not only is he the one who sustains our life Jesus Christ is our life he is my life he is your life he is the church's life and when Christ who is your life appears then you also will appear with him in glory
What a return on investment. What a promise that can never be broken. Christ, who is my life, is going to appear and I will be with him. And even now, (coughs) excuse me, in the midst of the assaults of temptations and trials of the guilt of my sin and the weight of my shame still haunting me, my life is hidden with Christ in God. And I will never be lost. Friends, this world is passing. And if you are in Christ, if you trust Jesus, glory is coming for you because Jesus Christ is our life. This world is passing, but the glory of the world that is to come is coming for all whose lives are hidden with Christ. Therefore, do not love the world because the world is not gonna love you back. And there is nothing that this world is going to give to you that Jesus will not give you a superior gift. Jesus is better. Jesus is superior. Jesus is supreme. Church, Jesus is your life. Look to him. Rest in him. Do not love the world. Glory is coming for us all. Let's pray. Father, we exult in this promise that no one will snatch your people out of your hand. And while this world is passing away along with its desires, we are safe in Christ. We have a superior promise and a superior gift, the presence of Jesus. We have been given eternal life. We will never perish. We have been given friendship with God. So we do not have to settle for the lusts and the temptations of the world, which is enmity with you. You have called us your friend, so we do not need to seek friendship with a passing world. Father, we ask that you would give us the grace and the humility and the strength and the ability to not love the world, but to be completely enamored with the gift of Christ. Father, we are reminded that this world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Father, we trust and believe that the love that you have given to us will lead us to abide forever in Jesus, and that is the great hope of our life. So, Lord, we will plant our flag on this hope, and we will find in you the rest that our restless hearts desire. We pray all this, Lord. In the beautiful name of Jesus, amen.